You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Datages. I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about Datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello, Datages friends and family. Welcome back to Datages. And I'd like to extend a particular welcome to all of my colleagues from the real estate industry who are taking part in this opportunity to join the Datages community as we focus on some pretty meaty discussions related to real estate finance in this continuing series entitled, It Takes Credit to Make Money. Today, I'm really excited to have our first guest on this particular topic joining us in the Datages virtual studio, Spencer Burton. Spencer is the head of investments for Stablewood, which is really a next generation real estate investment platform. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. I'm excited for Spencer to join us on Datages today because Spencer and I really only met a couple of months ago through a real estate industry event, but we've learned very quickly that we have a lot of commonality in our background and in our careers as well, as you'll find out in the next hour or so. Spencer, welcome to Datages. Yeah, thanks, Chad. It's really nice to be here. I'm excited to spend an hour with you talking real estate, talking family, talking life. Likewise, likewise. Spencer, you and I came together through a connection that was created at the conference hosted by IMN, the Information Management Network in SoCal just a couple months ago. So much of success in our industry is built upon relationships. Is Stablewood frequently involved in conferences and events of that nature? Or what do you find are the most effective ways to build new relationships in our industry? Yeah, you know, two questions there. The first, are we active in conferences? Certainly. I think if you're in the real estate industry, you have to be. I spent the first half of last week at a student housing conference, part networking, part trying to get a sense of the crowd view on the student housing space. Yeah, it's always great at these events to kind of get a state of the industry and take everyone's temperature. Most definitely, right? And you come out of it and there's like a conventional wisdom that everyone has. And then hopefully you modify that to an investment thesis that allows you to win. Your second question, I think is more importantly, and that's how do you develop relationships? And conferences are helpful to a certain degree, but I think In my experience, real relationships are built in the trenches. And so from a deal standpoint, those are the people that you're transacting with that either represent you or represent the other side that you're acquiring from or you're selling to. And or if you're young in the industry and you want to begin building those relationships, it's done through phone calls. It's getting to know people, picking their brains, learning about what they do and what they like, what they don't like. Conferences are good. Conferences are nice. Don't get me wrong. But the relationships you develop there generally are inch deep. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of my go-to datages that has served me well in the real estate industry is when all else fails, just show up. There's no substitute to being face-to-face with somebody. And these conferences do provide a 
good opportunity for that sort of thing, but it's kind of akin to speed dating. You don't really get to know somebody deeply on a professional level at the conference, but you can at least make a connection. And then, as you said, you really don't know somebody until you're in the trenches working with them. And then I think you really, really get to know somebody when you're across the table from them and actually carrying out a transaction with someone on the other side. Then you really see how people respond. And I've actually maybe cultivated some of the strongest relationships and the greatest respect from people that I've actually done a deal with and negotiated against, so to speak. And it goes the other way, right? So you build these strong relationships, you develop appreciation for people, respect for people in the way that they do business with you and they do business with others. If you're the sort of person that you think of a transaction is all about you, that's about winning, what you end up doing is you ruin relationships over a career. And at a certain point, your reputation precedes you and your reputation isn't good. It burdens your career later. And so it can go both ways. It's tough to make up for a bad reputation walking into a room ahead of you. 100%. Yeah. I like that insight and thanks for sharing that. And now, you know, Spencer, if you could share also with the Datages community just a little bit about what your platform at Stablewood is all about and how you and your colleagues built Stablewood and what makes the firm unique. I could go on two hours. So let me try to condense it into call it two minutes. So we call ourselves a digital multi-strategy operator. So first, an operator is someone, they create value in real estate in some way, right? So that when you think about operator, it has a couple different meanings. When we think about it, it's like we have some specialty that allows us to add value in, in a unique way. And that value then benefits the tenant, benefits capital. And hopefully, if we benefit the tenant and the capital, that benefits our bottom line. Multi-strategy, because we view one of the heuristics in real estate, one of the conventional wisdoms in real estate is that if you're not doing one thing and one thing only, you're distracted and you're not the benefit. And it came, I think, from the public markets where they looked at REITs. And at a certain point in time, they said, REITs need to do one thing and one thing only, or they're not maximizing their value. And we think that's 20th century thinking. Because generally speaking, and, and this is no offense to any of us actually in our career, right? I do one thing. But the problem with that is that one thing that we're good at doing oftentimes is only the right strategy every three to five years, right? Because real estate is cyclical and every property type is cyclical. And we see that from the brokers. They show us like where we are on that cycle that goes up and down that wave. And you're either going up or you're coming down. Or you're at the bottom or you're at top. When we say multi-strategy, what we think of is we use data in order to view the entire universe of potential investment strategies. And with that, we identify which strategies demand exceeding supply at attractive pricing at any given moment. And then we develop a team and we provide that team with a tech and a data source that allows them to win in that given strategy. That's the digital multi-strategy operator. We really think it's the next generation operator. The other thing that makes us unique is we really are half data and tech, half real estate. So our CEO, Glenn Lowenstein, Glenn was the CIO of Heinz in the 90s. And then he founded a real estate investment management firm called Lionstone, built Lionstone at one point to 9 billion of AUM. So we started that in 2001, sold that in 2017 to Ameriprise. And Glenn, he reached this moment in his career where he could either retire, maybe teach, or he could do the next thing. And he actually spent a year as a fellow at UT 
kind of taking classes with other students and adding value in his own unique way. And he came out of that just energized. In his words, a 30-year-old mind with a 60-year-old body, right? And he said he had a vision in his own mind of what a next-generation real estate investment firm looks like. And one component of that was it's not just best-in-class real estate practitioners, it's data and tech professionals. And so on our founding team, it's Glenn and I, a member of our founding team, Pam, who comes from, she's our CFO, compliance at at an institutional firm, accounting, finance from an institutional perspective. But then on the data side, we brought someone from professional baseball, had led the data analytics effort at the Houston Astros, is a member of the team that architects the success that they saw there. So you guys are cheating. You're playing money ball in the real estate industry. Yeah, there's a money ball 2.0 component to it for sure. Or at least we'd like to. I mean, data is far more sparse, unfortunately, yeah. in real estate than it is, say, in baseball. But that's the ambition. And so Brandon and our team brings that perspective, that ambition. And then Gert Stahl, our CTO, full stack developer, data scientist, builds the tools that we use. And then behind them are teams, data teams, tech teams, and then obviously on the real estate side, real estate teams. How does that translate? And I know I'm going beyond my two minutes, Chad, so I apologize. But for instance, we're launching right now a student housing platform. That's a strategy we think is opportune right now. And so we've partnered with a developer, one of the best developers in the student housing space, to launch a value-add acquisition strategy. And they bring the management and the value-add component, some of the practitioner expertise that we lack. And we're going to bring the data and technology, the investor, the investing hat, and then the institutional uniform to launch a scalable national value-add student housing acquisition platform. And so that's the dynamic multi-strategy operator concept that we have. Let's unpack a few of the concepts you covered there, because I think they're fascinating. You talked about, and it's an age-old raging debate in many industries, the idea of diversification versus specialization. And it sounds like you have specialized within a tool set, a skill set, and an approach but that specialization gives you the breadth of abilities to then diversify across asset classes to be able to pursue different business models within the industry. Is that a good takeaway from what what you said? I think that's fair. I think our specialization is the ability to develop best-in-class strategy, to see the strategies, develop the strategies, bring the practitioner talent in, that's the real estate talent, Mm -hmm. and then pair them with a data platform and a tech platform that they would otherwise not have access to and pair them with institutional capital that wants that sort of talent, but needs that talent to wear an institutional hat and have next generation tools in order to beat the market. And so that's our specialty, right? That's our specialization. Our specialization is building those sort of businesses. And you talked in our discussion leading up to the interview about how you leverage that specialization to, in your words, create alpha. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how that occurs. Yeah, you know, the industry is interesting because if we all look back 40 years, and I don't think we have to look back much further than 40 years. First off, a lot of wealth was generated in real estate. And you see these all the time. People, when they're hyping up real estate, they say, yeah, more millionaires, more billionaires have been created in real estate. And then, you know why? It's because of information asymmetry. For decades, information was housed in the minds of a limited number of individuals or families. And that information gave them an advantage in the market. They knew something that no one else knew. 
and therefore they could attain alpha. And when we say alpha, right, for those on the call who don't get the concepts of beta versus alpha, beta is what everyone can do, right? So if you put a dollar in the market, you're going to get beta, theoretically. Alpha is if you have some specialty or some information that others don't have, you can attain alpha. You can beat that beta. And in real estate, alpha, if you were the right player sitting in the right seats, you could attain fairly easily. Now, what's happened over the last 40 years is a few things. First off, institutions have entered the mix and institutions have a methodical approach, a data-driven approach. Theoretically, they have a data-driven approach. They have money to put behind information. But more importantly, technology and the information revolution has brought information into real estate space. And while, yeah, we're still way behind the other asset classes, but there's far more information real estate than there was, say, 40 years ago. And as a result, gaining alpha is much more difficult. In fact, I think if you look, when was the last real estate billionaire? It's probably been 20, 30 years. And that's, in my view, because of A, the institutional players, which compete very hard, and B, the information is much more readily available. We all have CoStar. We all see the latest trades. The brokers are all putting out the same information that we all have access to for little or no money. And so gaining alpha becomes much more difficult. Yeah, and I can relate completely. In some ways, the most profitable and prolific years of my career were actually the earliest years of my career, back 2001 through 2005, right as that information revolution was occurring that you're talking about. And we were able to squeeze out that last bit of time in the marketplace when there was that information asymmetry We could gain access to information through systematic approaches that not everyone could follow. And we just worked our asses off. We worked hard enough with the information that we got our hands on to create those advantages. And now I've had to evolve my business model several times over in the last 20 to 25 years to escape the level playing field. In some ways, the greatest disadvantage is that no one has a disadvantage any longer. It's a really tough place to be as an experienced real estate developer. And for me, it really has come down to the two words that I've shared over and over again on this podcast. My alpha is created by two things, and that's relationships and performance. It's just building relationships with people in the industry, performing for them, and then those will lead to the next set of relationships, rinse and repeat. It's interesting that you said, so for the listeners, Chad had not shared those two pieces. Now I go and I speak at universities probably once a week right now as part of when I talk about ACR at some point, love speaking to students. And I always say to students, there are two ways in which your value in real estate really is tied to two things, your network and your deal seasoning. That sounds like relationships and performance, right? (laughs) Sounds like it. Yeah. That's where your value comes from. And if you can develop a strong network or deep relationships and your performance can follow with you. And hopefully it's positive performance. An old mentor of mine said, Spencer, you know, there's two types of mistakes you make in real estate. Type one mistakes and type two mistakes. Type one mistakes are the deals that you should have done, but you didn't. And you can make as many of those mistakes as you want in your career. Type two mistakes are the deals that you shouldn't have done, but you did. You can only make those mistakes a handful of times in a career or you're out of the business. And that's what it sounds like performance is. One of my great mentors, Sam Freshman, who is the godfather of real estate syndication, he's approaching 90 years old now, still sharp as a tack. But one of his famous sayings is, 
some of the greatest deals in my career are the ones I didn't do. Spot on. That's exactly right. That relationships performance piece, how do you still gain alpha? That's one of them, right? Is your network, your relationships are strong and you have great performance and that gives you access to capital, hopefully cheaper than others have or deal flow that others don't have. The advantage of those is shrinking. How does one gain alpha now in this new world? It changes almost daily. Certainly, it changes by cycle. You know, every time we go through a cycle in real estate where there's an opportunity to grow, there's a different force that's driving that growth. And you have to find that wave and paddle into it. And if you don't, you'll miss it. And you've missed your shot in that cycle. And then you have to regroup for the next one. Well, and what's interesting, it feels like these moments are happening faster. Mm -hmm. The waves are happening faster. To use your analogy, paddle out and grab the wave. It used to be the wave, you could see it coming. It would take a while to crest and then it would run. Now the wave builds quickly. If you're not prepared to get on that wave fast, it's going to crest and it's going to crash quick. And then you got to be back out finding another wave. And a lot of people aren't equipped to work and run at that pace where they can see the wave, hop on the wave and ride it and then get back and find another one. Yeah. The real estate industry is no longer a day at the beach. It's certainly a day at the wave pool. That's right. There you go. That's a good adage. Yeah. And another wonderful image that you shared, and this speaks to this different mechanisms of creating alpha. When we were preparing for the interview, I loved the example you gave and and talking about how real estate investment is related to meteorology of all things. Can you talk to our listeners about the connection between real estate and the weather? Sure. Yeah. One of my passions is real estate financial modeling. When I was in grad school, I started this website. It was never intended to be a business. It was an outlet for me to share this passion I have for real estate financial modeling. I began sharing models. We now have with our website, the largest readily available, and I say readily available, meaning you can download them for free if you want, readily available models on the site, 70 plus. In fact, my co-contributor on the site, Michael Velasco, just shared this morning an RV acquisition model. So we have almost everything you could possibly imagine that we've shared. You know what I did this last weekend while everyone else was watching the Masters? What was that? I improved my student housing acquisition model, my value-add student housing acquisition model, and I hung out with ChatGPT and created some logic that was pretty cool. It took me about five minutes with ChatGPT. That would have taken me two hours pre-ChatGPT. But anyway, so I digress a bit. So if you think about real estate analysis, and quite frankly, real estate investing in general, all we are doing is we're forecasting the future of cash flows of a real estate investment. If you buy a parking lot with the intention of putting an apartment complex on it, what you're doing is you're going to forecast what kind of cash flows can I get from the parking income? What's it going to take to build the building? How much revenue will I get from rent plus other income? How much expense am I going to have to put out in order to secure that income? What's my net operating income going to be? Oh, and then what's the cap rate that I can cap that at that I can sell it in the future? And how does that compare to my yield on cost at entry? It's all forecasting. What we're essentially doing is forecasting the future of real estate cash flows. And I use the meteorology example because I think it's totally relevant. I'm sitting right now along the front range of Colorado, greater Denver area. And man, weather changes here, crazy. And the meteorologists have their work cut out for them. But what they do is they build models, right? So they have all this data 
from decades and centuries even of wind patterns and temperatures and precipitation. And yeah, now I'm way out over my skis, but they have all of this data. And so they then build models and they feed the data into the models. Those models have some inputs and some calculations and some outputs. And the outputs are what? What's the temperature going to be tomorrow? What's the temperature going to be next week? What direction is the wind going to come from? And how powerful is the wind going to be? How much precipitation are we going to get? Is it going to be rain? Is it going to be snow? Is it going to be some combination of that, right? And they make predictions based on those models. And if you think about it, the sooner in time the prediction, the higher the likelihood that that prediction comes true. You can be more accurate in the short term than in the long term. Totally, right? So their accuracy of precipitation an hour from now is going to be high. Accuracy of precipitation seven days from now is low. If you look out the window and it's raining, there's a 100% chance of rain. Don't you love when you open your app and Google says, is it raining right now? Yes or no? And they, anyway, so that's it's just simply data that feeds into some model. But yeah, real estate is exactly the same. What's the cap rate going to be tonight? We all know it because we've got all these comps from today. The comps from today likely tell us what the cap rate is tonight. What's the cap rate going to be a year from now? What's the cap rate going to be 10 years from now? What is rent going to be 10 years from now? Who knows, right? But what's rent going to be tomorrow? Well, if we're an apartment operator, we pretty much know what rent's going to be tomorrow. We look at Yield Star and it tells us what rent's going to be tomorrow. But what's rent going to be a year from now? Well, now that comes down to how good are we at forecasting rent a year from now? What's rent going to be three years from now? And you think about every input that ultimately drives our outputs. And our outputs depend on maybe a cash on cash return. All of those outputs are driven by the inputs. And the inputs are simply a function of the quality of the data we have. And traditionally, that data was all up here in our heads. And over time, that data has come out of our heads and it's gone into spreadsheets and then into databases and into data lakes. And then it's manipulated and he who or she who has the greater data creates the better inputs. And he or she who creates the better inputs has the more accurate outputs. And you're obviously a total geek about this stuff. And I'm using geek in the most complimentary sense of the word. You and I, I know, both believe in learning throughout life every day. But you're now doing a lot of teaching of these concepts as well. And you alluded to the real estate financial modeling platform and ACRE. Can you share a little bit with our listeners about your teaching platform and the instruction, the wisdom that you're transferring to others and sharing? Yeah. So I'm a first year business student at Cornell. So I'd come from residential land development. I loved modeling when I was in residential land. And so I knew what a land development model looked like. But I wanted to pivot to an institutional context. I wanted to pivot to other commercial investment strategies. I really wanted to be more of a generalist for a time. And so I go back to business school. One of the first things I wanted to do is I wanted to see what an apartment development model looked like, or a three-tier equity waterfall model looked like, or an industrial acquisition model. I just wanted to see what it looked like so that I can then recreate it on my own, right? And I went to the internet like all of us do and did 10 years ago. And I could not find for the life of me any of this. And that frustrated me. And so I started reaching out to alumni. And we have an incredible alumni organization as good as you have at Stanford. I can email any one of these 2,000 people and they'll get right back to me. And they're so helpful. Yeah. For those who don't know, Cornell at the graduate level is recognized as one of the top, top real estate programs in the world. 
And that's because of the network. In the same way that Spire and, and the quality of the real estate graduates that come out of Stanford are equally as good. The quality of your education is largely tied to the quality of the people that come out of it. But anyway, again, I digress. What I began doing is emailing alumni and saying, I'm curious to see what an apartment development model looks like, an institutional quality apartment development model. And they would send me the model always with a request or demand, which was, I'll share this with you, but you cannot share it with anyone else. It's proprietary. (laughs) And Chad's laughing because none of this stuff is proprietary. It's silly. Not at all. And my wife always says, I can keep a secret as long as I can tell one person. (laughs) Well, that too. That too. But these models are not, like this is not rocket science here. I'm not a rocket scientist. You're not a rocket scientist. All we're doing is we're trying to guess what the cash flows of a property are. And so they have these models. So they started sending these models to me. But I felt like it was a shame that the upcoming generation of real estate professionals couldn't at least see what these models look like and therefore begin to prepare themselves. And so I just committed with myself. And one of my classmates had a similar passion and a similar frustration around real estate financial modeling. And so we committed to be contributors. So ACRE, Adventures and CRE.com. We started this website and we just started contributing information that we felt like was missing out there. It started with this library of real estate financial models. We shared one and two and three and five and 10. Now we're at 70 something. And from there, people started using the models, which was cool. We never expected more than a couple dozen people to be geeks about this stuff. I mean, who really cares, right? And so we started sharing it. The audience started growing. 10 people and then 50 people and then 100 and then 200 and 1,000 and then 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000. 150,000 people right now come to the website. I mean, 150,000 really nerdy people. I don't know why they come. They need to get a life. (laughs) Nerds of the world unite. Yeah. Yeah. And they come to download the models. But what's happened over time is as we've recognized opportunities contribute, we've begun doing that. So for instance, we have a profile of 60 real estate programs, universities that teach real estate around the world. And we just profile the universities. It's not a ranking system. It's a chance for universities to share what they're doing in real estate. And it's for young professionals who may want to study real estate can then get a sense for which school might be a good fit for them. We do tutorials on Excel, how I build a real estate Excel header, my way. Everyone has their own way how I do it. And there's a tutorial. You know, we have probably a hundred of those type of tutorials. We have a whole legal section. So we have a legal contributor who shares LOI templates and lease templates and PSA templates and JV, JVA templates and the like. And so again, it's about contributing information that we felt like was missing on the internet. And the audience has grown. And they reached a point. How we've chosen what content to add has been really through requests. So people email and say, hey, which school should I attend? And from there comes a profile series. or what is it like investing in India? And from there, Padma is one of our contributors from India. And she produces this incredible content about real estate in India. It's so cool. We just did a series with a guy who's a real estate professional living in Ukraine. And he works for an international hotel company. Just interesting content. Anyway, so again, I'm getting long-winded, Chad. I apologize. But from that, we got people asking, hey, you know, you've got these great tutorials. How do I build a model like you do? It started with us just pointing them to blog posts. And it reached a point where we realized, you know, we need to create actually a program that holds their hand. And that's really the only paid product we have on our site. We call it our accelerator. We firmly believe that this skill, you don't learn in a classroom, you don't learn from a teacher, you actually learn it on your own in a dark room 
iterating over and over again. In the same way you learn to play, say, the guitar, an instrument, right? You don't really learn it from a teacher, but a teacher helps accelerate the process of learning. And so we called the program our accelerator. It's all case-based, 17 courses. And at the end of each course, you complete a case. And the case is real life cases. We built OMs. We have this faux brokerage firm called East Lang Ellis. I don't mean to be pitching our program, but you get the point. Very much, I love teaching this skill, real estate financial modeling, forecasting real estate cash flows. It's super fascinating. And it's also amazingly generous of you to commit so much time and effort to sharing all of these valuable resources with so many people out there. I have to ask you though, if you ever wake up in the morning and have this sort of existential conflict with yourself and saying, going back to that notion of the ability to create alpha, are you a force that is helping to further level that playing field and maybe making your quote unquote day job even more difficult as a real estate investor and developer? First off, I've never thought that. And I don't think so. I just have this philosophy that when you contribute value to others, that through karma or through the universe, or I don't know what it is, and I'm sure you're experiencing it, Chad, you're spending all this time, you could spend your time doing something that could, and I'm using air quotes, produce money, but you want to give back, you want to contribute value. And there's this natural law of the universe that when you do that without expecting anything in return, value comes back to you. And so, yeah, I mean, yes, is democratizing this information making it harder for the rest of us to gain alpha? I mean, maybe. I'd hope the rest of us are smart enough to find other ways to create alpha. But I think that the net benefit to the industry, the net benefit to me far outweighs any downside to limiting information in a way that I am best served. There's one other point actually I'll make if I could. Another dadage. When we started ACRE, Michael and I, we got about a year in. When you're producing content like this, it can either be a drag or it can be fun. And I said to Michael, 2016, so this is a few years into it, I said, the day that this stops being fun is the day I stop doing it. And I now have that philosophy about everything I do professionally. If I'm not having fun doing it, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to go on to something else. When I'm adding value, it's just fun. Yeah. There's an unlimited ROI associated with fun. That's 100% true. I mean, you still have to put food on the table and all that, but it has to be fun. You have to be enjoying what you're doing or, you know, life's too short. And I think one way that you're probably tangibly investing in your own business through what you're doing with ACRE, and this goes back to the recent episode where I talk about it takes credit to make money. And one of the forms of credit that I explore is credibility, credit created through credibility. And I think by being generous and sharing with others and sharing that knowledge that is one of the byproducts is establishing credibility one-on-one with individuals that you're working with. And then industry-wide, you establish yourself as a thought leader and someone that has an expertise and a set of knowledge. And I think then, and now we're going to really turn the page and get into the meat of today's discussion about raising capital in real estate. I think if you can successfully build that credibility it does translate into growth of your own business and the ability to raise capital and be successful in real estate investment. Couldn't have said it better. So let's turn that page. Let's talk about 
Stablewood. And let's talk about real estate capital, as is the topic of this episode. Can you talk a little bit further about the capital story for Stablewood? How did your firm raise capital initially? From where did that capital come? And then how are you continuing to source today and deploy that capital effectively into real estate investments? Yeah. So the first 10 years of my career working for a boutique developer, capital raising was the bane of our existence. (laughs) It ain't fun. (laughs) Constantly. It was so hard, right? Not that it's easy at Stablewood, it's not, but one of the reasons I left a very comfortable place that I was at, at an institution doing something really exciting, incredible people with almost an unlimited balance sheet, like the farthest thing from my mind was, is there going to be capital to finance a deal or not? But one of the reasons I joined Stablewood is Glenn. So Glenn Lowenstein, our CEO, just a storied career. He has the credibility that you describe. He has a reputation following Warren Buffett's philosophy of reputation is everything and you can lose it in a minute. And so you guard that as your greatest asset or one of your greatest assets. Glenn has that. He's the highest of integrity and he's raised in excess of 20 billion in his career, right? So unfathomable numbers for many of us, right? And so when we started Stablewood, it's just incredible to me. Glenn made a handful of phone calls to trusted individuals at institutional firms and said, we have something exciting that we're starting. And from that came three term sheets, very real term sheets from household names that I can't name here, but we'd all know them if I named them. And we chose the one that was just the right fit for us at that moment. Household name, insurance company, again, high integrity, the sort of firm that is just highly respected, done incredible things in the industry, great people. And they were our first investor into Stablewood. And now as we're launching follow-on strategies and we're seeking out other capital, other institutional capital, they continue to fund our first strategy. And I wish I could say who they are because they deserve praise. It's just a great firm and I love working with them every day. That first raise, Chad, was all about Glenn's reputation and a story that was credible He brought a team together that was best in class. I'm the weakest of the link, quite honestly, like just incredible people. He brought that team together, but really it was his credibility that made the difference in that first race. So basically you just need a Glenn. (laughs) It makes it a lot easier because otherwise it's tough. Yeah. One of the other things I talk about in the recent episode is my pathway into real estate. And I talk about sort of the standard pathways that people follow to get into real estate. And it sounds like just as my origin of my company was unique and based upon a unique set of advantages and circumstances that the origins of Stablewood were similarly based upon a unique set of advantages and circumstances. But if you rewind back in your career, my understanding is that your transition into the industry did follow more of a traditional path that you found an angle and worked your way into the industry from one angle. Do you want to kind of share your origin story in terms of getting into the industry? So I started in the land brokerage. My entire career has been in real estate. So I was a young 21-year-old kid, started as a land broker. And the only reason I started as a land broker is I had dreamed as a teenager, I'd been a plumber's assistant. I actually hung out in crawl spaces. I think you and I, Chad, have that in common where we worked on job sites when we were teenagers. And so I kind of fell in love with the built environment. And I thought, 
because I didn't understand the breadth of the industry, I thought I wanted to get into residential land development. And so as my career starting, I say, well, how do I learn it? And back then you couldn't go to school. It's not like today where there's all these great undergraduate programs in real estate or minors in real estate where you can specialize. There were a few grad schools in real estate and that was it at this time. And so I went into land brokers to learn the business and it served that purpose perfectly. I met some great people, learned the business quickly, built credibility. That credibility led to my first job. One of my clients hired me as a land acquisition professional. And so in essence, what I was doing as a land acquisition professional is the exact same thing I was doing as a broker. I was bird dogging land. I was helping create the vision for that land, how to add the most value, connecting with our land use planners, with the designers, with our marketing team, working with entitlement people, understanding the complexities of the physical, the environmental, the legal, title survey, and so forth. Moved into land acquisition, and that was now a piece of ownership, right? In real estate, you either get a piece of ownership at the entity level, so you're a partner in the company, or you get a piece of ownership in the form of a piece of the promote. And I think most of us, especially earlier mid-career, we get a piece of the promote. And so that was my first feeling of ownership, where I was actually getting a piece of a project if it succeeded. And that then led to, well, wall, the crash. And we went to Panama, the the company I was with, we went to Panama. Now we're talking about capital raising. So there's this moment in time, I'm very entrepreneurial, where I'm transitioning from brokerage to land acquisition and a friend approaches me. And he said, hey, I think we should start a mortgage brokerage. Here's this concept. He's actually quite creative. And I said, sure, but we need well-capitalized. We got to go out. So who are we going to raise money from? Well, we were young. We had no credibility, really. How we raised the capital, Chad, for that very first, that mortgage company that we launched. We needed about 50000 was what we thought for to start up. And so I found a single family home that was large enough where you could split a lot off the back. So we buy the home. We split the lot off. The lot was worth roughly 50000 We sold the home up front for what we paid for the entire parcel. And then we sold the lot off to a builder that I knew, got the 50000 That's what we used to start the mortgage company. I did help raise some capital for the Panama project. That was friends and family. There's some credibility now, mainly credibility, the more senior people in the firm. And we did some housing projects in Panama, incredible experience there. But outside of that, my capital raise has been really institutional beyond that. Yeah. And it's remarkable how you used your first real estate deal to get the capital for doing real estate deals. It seems completely backwards, but amazing nonetheless. We bought that house with, I think, $3,000 cash, right? We got an FHA loan. It was $115,000. So whatever, 3% of $115,000. Like we said, it takes credit to make money. Yeah. Yeah. And we sold the house back to market. I think we sold it for one twenty-five, dollars And after commissions, we broke even on the house. And then we made our money on the $50,000 lot that, that we sold. And it didn't cost us anything to do the lot split. Some of our time, maybe there was an administrative fee of 50 bucks or something. And let's now rewind further in your story. I'd like to kind of go back to the beginning because you shared with me some interesting things about your upbringing in the Northwest that had something to do with your mom counting cows in Montana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, all of us are born with certain advantages. This is a bit of a, uh, a sensitive topic right now, so I don't want to like get into too much of the politics of it, right? It used to be we would say we're blessed, right? And now the term is privileged. 
the concept of privilege and concept of blessed, and blessed is probably a Judeo-Christian term, and so it's become more secular with the concept of privilege. And again, not to get political about it, but the point is that all of us, we're born with certain privileges. And Warren Buffett describes this trip he took to Southeast Asia. He was on a boat and there was this guide, and I'm going to butcher the story, but in essence was touring them through this river. And he had this thought where he went, and this guide apparently was incredible and knew that river really well, but for all intents and purposes was as poor as you can imagine. And Warren Buffett had this thought, which was in essence, I was just born in a different boat. Something that, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but in essence, that, that's the idea. So I was born in Montana. My parents lived in a double wide. In my context, I've my fair share of blessings, things that gave me an advantage, but certainly money was not one of them. My father worked for the Forest Service. If you've ever worked for the government or you know how government works, you're poor until a certain level and then you are adequate to survive and then you get retirement. That's really healthy. He's actually doing quite well now because he has a nice, healthy government retirement. When I was born, we were very poor. I was the fourth and then my brother followed. We were five kids and you know, in our generation growing up, five kids wasn't that much. And certainly when you were born in Montana in Mountain West, Pacific Northwest, you know, that wasn't that big of a family. That's the labor force. <laughs> it was a labor force, right? Right. My parents were constantly figuring a way to put food on the table. And so my mom would do these odd jobs. I remember as a kid sitting in the back of our station wagon, and one of the odd jobs she'd do is she would count cows. And so we would drive out to a field and she'd go out. And I remember sitting there in the car looking over at her and she's counting the cows and then she'd do a report. Another job that she had was she would wash telephone booths. So she was paid on a contract basis to go out and wash telephone booths, right? And at a certain point in time, my dad had reached a level where he was doing all right, well enough where my mom could go back to school. So she went back and she got a degree in English. And I remember as a kid, I was young, I was probably eight at this point in time where she graduated and she got a degree in English, which allowed her to go into journalism. And so she became a radio personality. When I was a teenager, she was on the morning radio I would see her face on billboards. I think the point is, though, that like I was never exposed to real estate. That was the farthest thing from my mind until I got that job as a plumber's assistant. Now, what I did have was a very stable home, two parents that worked for my success, that took great care of me, a dad who was a model father and a mother who was a model mother. And that's the real advantage I had. And Spencer, you actually told me that you feel like you got your entrepreneurial spirit from your grandfather. Can you share that background with our listeners? Yeah. So it's actually my great-grandfather. So my grandfather was an attorney. So I guess he was somewhat entrepreneurial. He had his own law firm. You don't generally think of attorneys as being entrepreneurial for whatever reason. But my great-grandfather was very entrepreneurial. In fact, I have here up on the wall a hammer that my great-grandfather had used. He did rentals. And I only learned this later when I was early 20s when I got into real estate. And my mom said, oh, did you know? <laughs> he was into rentals. And I feel like at least the genes that I got came from him. The entrepreneurial gene where... And if you think about an entrepreneur, really what we are is we are identifying problems in the world. And we dream up solutions to those problems. And the side benefit is that there's some outsized economic return to us. The real joy is in identifying a problem 
and then creating a solution that is widely adopted. And then working hard to implement it. And that's, to me, what your uh, great-grandfather's hammer symbolizes. Oh, I think that's right. A friend of mine who's also entrepreneurial, he says there's entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. And a entrepreneur <laughs> is the type, and we all know them, they come up with a million great ideas, but they never execute any of them. And to your point, if you don't execute, you know, an idea is worthless, really. Absolutely. And speaking of hard work, you alluded earlier to your time working as a plumber's assistant and crawling around in the crawl spaces and how that's common ground for you and me. You spent your time as a teenager crawling around under houses, and I spent my time working as a roofer and a framer crawling around on top of them. How handy are you today? Me, I don't do any of that. I was a plumber and then I spent a time as a maintenance guy for a Boise City, Ada County housing. It's kind of low-income housing, but for seniors. I got it out of my system. And so I will hire out anything I possibly can to someone else to do it. Or my wife who's very handy. She'll do it. What about you, Chad? Are you, are you handy? Are you running around with a hammer? I have the ability set, but I'm limited to hanging things at this point. <laughs> I don't build much of anything, but I'm certainly the designated hanger in our house. But what I'll tell you is two things. One is I'll rewind back to when I went to Stanford in 1994. I moved into Branner, which was my freshman dorm. And it was this old, ancient building that's been there seemingly since Stanford was built in the late 19th century. We had these large, high vaulted ceilings in the rooms, but there wasn't that much floor space. And they squeezed three of us as freshmen into each <laughs> dorm room. And so I looked at the room and I said, well, we're wasting a lot of vertical space in here. Let's build a loft. And I went out, we bought the lumber, we came up with an engineering plan to create an internal frame that would support the loft against the walls of the room without having to actually penetrate into the walls to create any stability. And mind you, this is in the Bay Area, so it all has to be seismic as well. I built by hand using hammers and saws and nails this loft. And to this day, I think every one of my freshman dorm mates, I guarantee you, I'm going back for my 25th reunion this year. Somebody's going to say, you're that guy that built that loft. <laughs> because of everyone at Stanford, I was the only person that brought that skill set to the table. So that's one thing I wanted to share in that regard. The other is that I was talking to somebody one time and asked them for a piece of advice about time management and success. And what is the one piece of advice that you'd give? And they said, as soon as you can afford to hire somebody to do your laundry. And it wasn't just about laundry. It was a notion that once you transcend to a different level where you're investing your time, your effort, and your energy in solving more complex problems that only you can solve, delegate to somebody else the things that somebody else can do effectively. I couldn't agree with that more. All of us, we should. Everyone should reach a point in your life, and hopefully it's earlier rather than later, where you recognize the value of time. For some people, they enjoy tinkering. They enjoy maybe mowing the lawn. Maybe they enjoy laundry, believe it or not. And if that's the case, that's one thing, right? That's something that gives you fulfillment in life, and therefore you are using that time in a way that benefits you. But if it's something that you don't enjoy, you want to pay someone else to do it. 
you want to value your time such that your time is worth more than whatever you have to pay that person, whether it's laundry or lawn or repairs in the house. I'm a big believer in that. It sounds almost like elitist, but no, it's like, I think every single one of us should reach a point where we value our time so much that we are willing to pay someone else to do something so that we can free that time up to do something more fulfilling. Absolutely. And I'm glad we uh, shifted to talking about the household because that's actually where I'd like to go now with the discussion. You know, I've learned about you, Spencer, that like me, not only are you finding yourself today passing on knowledge to the next generation in the real estate industry, but you're also doing that at home. You have three children ages 17, 16, and 12. Can you talk to us a bit more about Spencer Burton, CEO of the Burton Household? and how you take the lessons you've learned from life and work and are passing them on to your own kids now? Well, first off, the CEO is Carrie Burton. (laughs) Uh, I just work here for one. So my wife and I've been married, it'll be 21 years here in two months in a few weeks. We were very poor when we met. I was just starting this brokerage career and I did not have the luxury of working at a brokerage firm like a CBRE or a JLL that give you a salary. You know, it was 100% commission. I didn't have support from family. And so we, in fact, the first year we lived in this place that didn't have heat. Well, it had heat. It had a oil furnace. We couldn't afford to fill this oil furnace. It cost like $500 to fill the thing up. And so we went the first year where we would just, we lived in Idaho at the time. We went and we'd cut down wood. And then we'd use wood to heat the house. And not once in the 22 years, and we've had plenty of ups and downs financially. And the GFC was a really hard hit for us. Carrie's never once questioned my entrepreneurial drive or said, you should probably go get a job (laughs) because you're not paying the bills. And there were a few years where it was very, very tight. I mean, there was a period where we lived in her parents' basement. And that's humiliating as a man. And so incredible wife and love her dearly. And she's put up with me this long. I think we're in it for the long haul. Then we have our three kids, Sydney, Preston, and Alexandra, Lexi, 17, 16, and 12. Our oldest, Sydney, is preparing to go off to college right now. So I've been doing college tours with her, which is really fulfilling. My son wants to be a pilot, which is pretty cool. My youngest is the entrepreneurial one. And one point over the last year said to me, hey, dad, you know, I like design but I want to make money. (laughs) I want to make money. I take over your business for you. I'm like, well, let's talk about that in 20 years. You didn't know you were ready for retirement yet. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. That's number one. You know, I get so much fulfillment out of spending time with them and, you know, seeing each individual personalities, the kids, each one are so different. They have different ambitions. And for me, it's just about supporting whatever passion they have, whatever ambition they have. I don't want to force one thing or another on them. And so they're all taking very distinct tracks and it's kind of fun to see that. But it seems clear that they definitely inherited your spirit of individuality and entrepreneurism in what they're pursuing. I hope so. You know, my oldest right now has an interest and we'll see, you know, at this age, interests change, but her interest is foreign service. So when I say foreign service, that's really embassy work, right? Working for US embassies around the world. She loves other cultures. And she spent the first eight years, seven years of her life in Panama. So she kind of grew up with that. That's what life's about, right? Is experiences and ultimately finding what you really enjoy doing. And 
assuming you can make a living doing that. I'm also not the type that says, you know, go pursue your passion, but then don't actually support yourself or your family. But assuming whatever your passion is. Well, and it seems like the message is getting through if your youngest daughter comes to you and says, I want to be an artist, but I still want to make money. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't want to discourage her either. And so what she really wants to do is digital animation. And apparently from one of her YouTubers that she follows, so she loves drawing pads. She's got this drawing pad and she creates these incredible animations. She's really talented. But apparently one of the YouTubers she follows says that there's no money in it. And that's when she came to me and said, hey, I love digital animation, but there's no money in it. What do you think about law? Or can I take over your business? And at least she's thinking about it. You're right. Yeah, that's, that's great. And do you find yourself leaning on one piece of go-to advice that you're offering to your children over and over again? Is there one Spencer Burton dadage that you find yourself going to all the time? Come what may and love it. That's awesome. I like that. And what that means is, you know, life's going to throw all sorts of things at you. Enjoy it. We actually embrace that in Panama. So if you've ever lived overseas, I know you have an interest or passion for Poland, I think, Chad? Yeah, yeah. Warsaw is where I spend a lot of time these days. When you go to a different place, we lived all around the US, you go to new places and it's always different. And you have two decisions when you encounter things that are different. The first is complain because it's not the way it's supposed to be, again, in air quotes, Just because you think it should be that way doesn't mean that it should be. That's how you were raised inside your world. That's how things should be. And as you start experiencing other places, I lived in Venezuela for a few years. Very, very different, right? And so in Panama, we embrace that philosophy as just come what may and love it because either you're going to hate it because it's not like the way you're used to, or you'll embrace it. Just because it's different doesn't mean it's bad. It's just different. As we've matured in our life beyond that, we apply that philosophy to everything. Food, (laughs) places that you visit, teachers, business partner. I love my business partners, but you get the point. Absolutely. And it's such a valuable lesson. I wish we could just wave a magic wand and instill it in our entire populace because it's such a fundamental flaw that exists, I think, in today's society is that we've all determined that we're all right about everything and are no longer open to any new and different perspective. And I think particularly we as Americans, and particularly people who have lived in America their entire lives and have never experienced other cultures, like the gift that you're giving to your children, we become so Amerocentric and so focused on our way of life and our way of doing things and imagine that it's right, that it's exactly right for everyone on the planet. And I think that's just such a misconception And when you do get out and see the rest of the world, you can see how many different ways of life and how many different ways of being work for different people in different places around the world. And it's not just even Amerocentric. It could be your little tiny bubble within wherever in the world you live. Some of the dearest people to me are, so when we were developing in Panama, we developed entry-level housing. And these are incredibly hardworking people. But generally, their worldview is limited to a 25-kilometer, and that's just because of circumstances. You can't afford to get a passport, let alone to travel outside the country. And oftentimes, you can barely afford to travel outside of your own province at no fault of their own or any of our own, right? You get this very limited bubble view 
for many people, the vision of the internet was that it would give us access to the rest of the world and all of a sudden make the world a better place. And ironically, almost the opposites happen. You recognize how different people are. And instead of embracing the differences, you turn to I hate. Reject and retaliate. Yeah. Yeah. It's truly unfortunate. I have an example of what you were talking about in your experience in Panama that was really pronounced to me and really reframed my perspective very recently in our trip to Kenya over this past summer with my family. We were in a schoolhouse with a bunch of small children from ages, I would say, five to 12. And we were trying to explain where we were from. And the teacher said, these students don't understand a globe. They don't understand the concept of the planet Earth. They can't really understand what a different country is or what the ocean is even because they've never seen the ocean. So you can't say, I'm from across the ocean. The only way you could possibly describe it was to describe how many days time it would take to travel where you were going if you were to walk there. And so we had to try to extrapolate if you were to walk from their village to the United States, if you could theoretically, how long of a walk would that be? And that was the only way we could possibly explain to them where we were from. And that was such a reframing of my perspective of how difficult it is to engage with people from different cultures and different perspectives and how much you really have to go down to the common denominator that unites all of us as human beings to relate. Well, I think that's the key. It's rather than framing other people's thinking with your own baseline, put yourself in their shoes, work to understand a point from their perspective. In your context, that's perfect. It's like, okay, well, they may not understand this idea of how far in a plane or how far in a car, but they certainly understand walking. And if you think about it, we as humans living on this planet often will use those sorts of very simplistic things to understand the universe. How far is it from here to the sun, right? And I think the key to this problem, and it's much easier said than done, is empathy. It's stopping for a second, saying, this person I'm interacting with just thinks differently because of where they come from, how they were raised. Let me stop and try to think from their side and then frame my reaction or my you know, perspective, at least understand from their side. And we've lost that in the world. I mean, that used to be like a trait we all sought after, which was empathy. And it's, I don't want to say gone because it's fatalistic, but at least the loud voices on the internet make it feel like it is less important today than it used to be. It's hidden away. That notion of putting yourself in another person's shoes and seeing things the way they see them It's an important lesson for life, but it also is an important lesson for business, going back to earlier in our discussion and how you connect with people, how you relate to people, how you conduct business with people. If you can put yourself in their shoes, you can be far more successful. And speaking of seeing the world from another's point of view, you know, as we wind down today's interview, I just wanted to share with the Datages friends and family that This is not the end of our engagement, Spencer and Chad, but really just the beginning. And in the weeks ahead, your partner at Adventures in Commercial Real Estate, Michael Belasco, 
will be joining a new segment that we have coming here at Datages called Entrepreneur's Corner to have a discussion about his new ventures. And then I'll be joining you gentlemen on ACRE and your podcast to complete this home and home and share what little bit I can to help enlighten and educate and share my perspectives with your listeners as well. Really looking forward to that. Both listening to your Entrepreneur's Corner episodes with Michael and others, as well as having you on the ACRE podcast. Yeah, it's really exciting to all of us here at Datages on our team to have this engagement with you and the ACRE team. And I know that our Datages friends and family are really going to have a great opportunity to follow along and join us in this journey as we go. And Spencer, as you know, we can't wrap up today without honoring an age-old tradition here at Datages and giving you a chance to share your very worst dad joke with the Datages friends and family. My dad jokes tend to be on the spot, on the whim, the cheesiest thing that I can do that makes my kids embarrassed. And so many of those don't really apply here. And so I surveyed the kids and asked them to send me what they thought was the funniest dad joke. I don't know if it's that funny, but we'll give it a try. So have you heard of the new movie called Constipation? No, I haven't. Well, it hasn't come out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Subtle, but anything involving poop is a really good dad joke. Yeah, you can't go wrong with that. So (laughs) kids will always find those funny. Well, thank you for sharing, Spencer, and thanks again for your time here and looking forward very much to our ongoing engagement and connection with Datages and ACRE. This has been a great treat. Thank you, Chad, for having me on. And remember, everyone, Dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages.com and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate or review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.